1: It's good to have all of you back for Political Rewind as we start a brand new week of the show. I hope you all had a restful, uh, relaxing holiday weekend. And if you were um, commemorating um, a a service member uh, who uh, you think about on Memorial Day, I hope it was a meaningful uh, day for all of you out there as well. Um, We've got a lot to talk about on the show today, uh, so let's get right to our panel. Uh, Margaret Coker is back with us today she of course is the editor-in-chief of the current uh which you can read at the a terrific online news publication which brings you news from the georgia coast but also uh it it, it covers uh things far beyond uh that just that stretch of uh, georgia margaret how are you today
0: hi great to um be here with you all this morning after a fun holiday weekend
1: yeah, well, thanks for joining us. Rene Alegria is back with us as well. He is the CEO of Mundo Hispanico, one of the uh, talk about digital platforms, one of the uh, biggest digital platforms for news uh, in the Hispanic community. Rene, how are you doing?
2: I'm good. Thanks for having me, Bill. It was a good weekend, although, you know, tempered by the news dripping in, you know, with with what we have found out about last week and the tragedy
3: you know it's
1: uh mixed a- bag. Abs- yeah absolutely um and, and in just a minute we're going to talk about uh the the, the massacre and uh and, and, and all of the threads emanating uh from it raul Bowie is back with us as well he of course is a policy reporter at <laughs> wabe in atlanta um spends a lot of his time covering politics the state legislature uh raul how are you doing
3: I'm doing great. I uh, I did what I call a legit unplug this weekend where I really did put the Twitter away, put everything away for a couple of days. And I think it's the first time oh. I've done it this year. I really needed it.
1: What a brave soul. Congratulations <laughs> for no, doing it just, that.
3: It's hard in our in our news world. It's so hard just of to course. truly unplug. You know, you're yeah. always wanting yeah. to look at Twitter, but but I just, I needed it.
1: Good for you. Uh, And joining our panel of journalists, Claire Sanders, who is a a professor of political science and public administration at uh, Georgia College in Milledgeville. Claire, how are you? Did you have a decent weekend?
4: It was a great weekend. Um, Certainly mindful of the reason for the weekend, but got to spend some really nice time with family and friends as we celebrated my youngest um, son's birthday, so...
1: Oh, well, congratulations. (laughs) All right, let's get right to it. Um, As a couple of you pointed out, uh, we are still uh, thinking so much about the awful, awful mass shootings in uh, Uvalde, Texas. It it dominated uh, the debates on the news shows over the weekend. We were hearing how members of the U.S. Senate were trying to negotiate some sort of agreement that could at least get them closer to passing something that relates to gun safety. President Biden, of course, went to Uvalde to talk to the families who lost their children um, down there. Um, He said, we will do something, but what they're going to do is really, really uh, unknown at at this moment. Um, And I want to start, Margaret, because the, um, the Uvalde massacre has really shown a bright light on the company that manufactured the weapon that was used in the killings. Um, And let me read just a little bit to you, Margaret. I'm coming to you first because this company is a Georgia company. They're located in Black Creek. They've been around since 2000, 2001. But here's how the New York Times reported on them over the weekend. The Texas shooting which left 19 schoolchildren and two teachers dead and more than a dozen wounded, has put a national spotlight on Daniel Defense, a family-owned business in Georgia that has emerged as a trailblazer in an aggressive, boundary-pushing style of weapons marketing and sales. Some of its advertisements invoke popular video games like Call of Duty and feature Star Wars characters and Santa Claus messages that are likely to appeal to teenagers. The company was an early adopter of a direct-to-consumer business model that aimed to make buying military gear as simple as ordering from Amazon, enticing customers with a, quote, adventure now, pay later installment plan that makes expensive weaponry more affordable. Um, So, Margaret... um, Let's talk a little bit about, about Daniel. One example, by the way, of their aggressive advertising is just a few days before the Uvalde shootings, they put up a, a, a picture on Twitter of a toddler holding an assault weapon. And uh, they, the uh, ad quoted from uh, uh, scripture talking about essentially, I'm not quoting it directly, how if you start your children off right, they will become... Uh, they'll be the people you want them to be uh, when they grow up. Uh, Margaret, um, talk about Daniel.
0: Yeah, there's 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 so much to unpack here. First, let me just say that the you know the founder, the CEO of the company, um, Marty Daniel, um, grew up here in coastal Georgia. You know, he is a a graduate. Um, w- although he struggled through through his studies, he's a graduate of Georgia Southern. And he, by all accounts, is an engineering whiz. He started um, his company by, by um, self-engineering scopes and sights for rifles. And the, the, um, the company made it big with, um, right after 9-11 by, um, by, by securing a contract with U.S. Special Forces. So America's elite um, soldiers were were the beneficiaries of of his um, expertise and suddenly through the mid 2000s as america is reeling from a tidal wave of gun violence and mass shootings daniel defense goes from being a military contractor to a consumer um, um, you know, just a, a consumer retailer. And anyone who gets online today at Daniel Defense's website in four clicks can be the proud owner of a semi-automatic assault rifle, the same sort of things that our soldiers use overseas um, to on counterterrorism raids. And so we have gone in, you know, in America, in the last 20 years of of being a nation that prizes uh, elite weaponry for soldiers to allowing our 18-year-olds without any military training to be able to buy the same sorts of weapons. And one of the, you know, one of the strange contradictions of America's laws uh, that that we pointed out in our newsletters at the current last week was that in Texas, um, the the shooter, um, the the murderer in Uvalde. Under federal law, he was prohibited by buying, from buying a handgun, but he was allowed as an 18-year-old to buy an assault rifle online. And that has to do, I think, with this patchwork of, of gun rights laws across America that, that starts with pulling on America's sort of heartstrings and nostalgia for, um, for hunting rifles, long guns, as they're called in law. Uh, you know, fathers uh, want their children to, to go out hunting with them. Um, we've gone from having single-shot rifles available to young people, double-barrel rifles available to, long pe- to young people, to assault rifles. And the ways in which that state laws and federal laws just don't match and the, the power that we give 18-year-olds um, in, in terms of their their ability to handle um, high-velocity weaponry is astonishing to me, especially because when I was 18 and I desperately wanted a beer, I lived in dry counties, and I wasn't able even to buy a 3.2 beer, but assault rifles are now within everybody's reach.
1: Renee? Yeah, I I think that we're
2: really at a crossroads um, in our country about who we want to be and... who, who we uh, who we who we tag our leaders and how they vote and how our children uh, either are safe or are not. I I've, I had so many conversations over the weekend of friends with friends friends of with young children, teachers. Uh, Uvalde actually looked so much like the elementary school that I attended in Southern Arizona, where everybody was Hispanic and you know I mean it was so much. Like I knew those kids, right? I knew those teachers and those teachers' aides, and and um, in in my world in the '80s in Southern Arizona, and it just it really, you know, it just makes you question. I think so. So many over the weekend, while we're you know trying to dive into potato salad and and you know memorialize um, our our fallen countrymen and women, uh, you know the the tragedy just kind of made at least me think okay we got to pause and, and take a breath and and dive forward with a, a different mindset I, I read this morning that 30 people died um, w- with gun related violence over the weekend um, various parts of the country just different you know crime whatnot and uh, that is not reported right that's just kind of what we are used to now. And I do think that there there is uh, this this marked a turning point. At least, you know, we've we've heard it said before, right? Where that turning point came after Sandy Hook came and went, you know. We're we're going to see our uh, the Senate and the House come back uh, June sixth, right, to see what deal they can they can supposedly come up with in terms of just uh, cooperation and one hopes that some reason will begin to float up and we can actually step away and look at our legislation and think of the safety of our children. And and again, the, the path that we're on as a, as a country, you know, we're all exhausted. Um, this, this you know, we you hear so much about mental illness and, and the anxiety that all of this like layers on over just how we live our lives. There's this layer of fear of just anything could happen at any moment. And I don't recall ever having that to this degree. Um, so yeah, it's, it is a crossroads.
1: Um, you know, Claire, I, I think one of the things on Friday show, we had uh, Dr. Mark Rosenberg, uh, and he, a public uh, health leader, who, uh, uh, as we talked about it on Friday, uh, led the CDC effort to study and gather data on uh, guns gun violence so that they could find ways to mitigate some of the problems. Um, And he pointed out, Claire, that the problem we deal with sometimes with gun advocates is they see it as a black or white issue. You're either for guns in any form or you're trying to take all our guns away from us. And the reason I mention this now is I I spent some time on the Daniel Defense website this weekend, and, and I think it's interesting when you read the way in which they talk to their customers about how they should talk about guns they have a very calm approach. They say, they say this, one of the best things you can do to help bridge the gap between those who support Second Amendment rights and those who don't is to speak up and educate people, not an in-your-face confrontational manner, but by having a civil discussion, sharing your personal beliefs and experiences. Guns can be scary to people who don't own or fully understand them, which makes gun rights equally as scary to many by conveying your knowledge of, of and experience with firearms to others with little or no experience, you're doing your part to help make the Second Amendment issues less scary. That all sounds very reasonable, but again, it's all framed in, you either support the Second Amendment, which means guns for all, or you don't.
4: Right, and I would um, look at this from a political science perspective. We talk about it in my classes in terms of the complexity of public opinion on this issue. You have, um, yes, the majority of Americans support more gun restrictions. However, um, the same um, percentage of Americans also say that these gun restrictions may not prevent a mass shooting. Um, You have a patchwork of federal laws. You have a a patchwork of state or excuse me, patchwork of state laws relating to um, guns and gun restrictions because you have a patchwork of constituencies. Um, you have um, definitely, in terms of Republican um, states or less competitive states um, where Republicans are the majority, um, these, these lawmakers are making policies that represent their constituents' views. And so when it comes to public opinion uh, and gun control, it's very complex, and we can unpack it to see that that, Yes, there are, um, there's, there's support for more gun restrictions. You see, like, Senator Corden in, um, Texas, one of the, the, one of the Republicans that's working on a bipartisan, um, sort of approach to this after the Texas shooting. And, um, it will be interesting to see, um, if Republicans will, um, go forward with, a bi- this bipartisan approach. But given the reality of, of electorates, um, their constituencies, it's unlikely that you'll see any sort of transformation in in gun policy. And President Biden's acknowledged that too. I mean, from the White House, you're seeing um, pragmatic actions being taken. Um, I think President Biden, his, um, his administration has acknowledged that They've pretty much exhausted any sort of executive action that they can take. And anything else has to happen in Congress. And with polarization in Congress, um, it's, it's very unlikely that there will be any sort of transformative um, change in, in gun policy.
1: Raul, you want to jump in?
3: So I had uh, two friends text me who, who are not in the political world and ask if anything's going to change. And, and I think in reality, no. You know, you look at whether it's the Georgia legislature or mm. as, as Claire was talking about what's going on in Washington, D.C. You know, I look back at the Georgia legislature. You had a uh, red flag legislation filed by State Representative Matthew Wilson. But I remember two years ago, you had anti-red flag mm. legislation filed by State Representative Ken and That would, you know, if, if Congress came down with legislation, Dealing with you know you know who couldn't who couldn't couldn't get a gun, it would not be allowed to be enforced. That's what the, the state bill was. Now who knows if it you know was constitutional or not. But I, the the ability for anything to happen either at the state level or the national level is just really really difficult because of what you've said, Bill. There you, you either are it, it's so black and white. You either for or against um, this kind of legislation.
1: Yeah, and as Mark Rosenberg pointed out on Friday, that's really not what the what we're talking about here. We're talking about precaution. We're talking about measures that would uh, prevent the worst and most egregious issues of violence with uh, weapons, not taking people's guns away. All right, Margaret, I want to play a soundbite from uh, Face the Nation for you and for everybody else to jump in on as well. This was Governor Asa Hutchinson. On face the nation, um, and he, he's a Republican governor, Arkansas. Uh, he's a he's in many ways he's thought of often as kind of a thoughtful, in in some cases moderate uh, governor. He is he is not a knee jerk uh, right winger, um, but there were a lot of Republicans who talked over the weekend like he did. But when I heard him, I just thought he was really representative of the way Republicans are talking about guns, and so. Uh, Margaret Carlson asks him about Uvalde, what needs to be done coming out of Uvalde, and here's a big part of his answer. School safety is something that we all have to
3: focus on coming out of the incredible tragedy that we see in Uvalde. We have to look at how we can better secure our schools, and it is about the single point of entry that by blocking it open allowed the gunman to come in. It is about the mental health issues where we've got to do better to identify those that are potentially a mass killer. Uh, You've got to have our private sector internet providers to do better in using technology to identify these kind of dangerous,
1: violent communications much quicker. And then, of course, uh, we have to be able to train our officers properly. So, Margaret, all that sounds very reasonable. There's only one element missing. Maybe we should legislate some prohibitions on the use of certain weapons or the people who can get access to them.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I I I, I don't disagree with anything that Mr. Hutchison just said, uh, except for that glaring um, that 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 glaring um, um, lack of detail about the actual implement that kills people, right? Um, but let's we all, we all know, living here in Georgia, that our, our, all of our police departments in our 159 counties are having trouble recruiting police right now. Almost every police department in the state is, are, down, um, are down recruits. And how are you supposed to then um, recruit yet another police force, a, a, a beefed-up police force for all of our school districts? How are we supposed to tell our teachers, who are already working at incredibly minimal pay, that they have to check locks on every single door around their schools before they start classes every day. How are we supposed to tell our juvenile court justices who are crying out for more um, mental health uh, um, resources and and therapists for, for kids who are at risk, who don't have that budget, and cities who do not have those services in place right now? How are we supposed to stand that up in the next 18 months or eight months or eight years when the state of Georgia and other states just haven't been Um, haven't, haven't had that as a priority. You know, our kids are are in danger right now. And our kids are in danger right now, I would, I would suggest not because, uh, not because of unlocked doors at schools, they're at danger because of the ease at which we all, um, even 18 year olds can get guns in America.
1: So, Raul, um, you know, it's it's fascinating to me. Daniel Defense pulled out of the NRA convention in uh, Texas, in Houston this weekend. That they were obviously smart to do that. Um, and, and and the thing about the NRA is that the reality is they're always the the uh, what what people who are want real significant changes in gun laws, a up is public enemy number one. It's the NRA's influence on members of Congress. It's the money they pour into campaigns uh, that keeps them strong. And there, of course, there's truth to that. But, Raul, it strikes me it's more than that now. It's become more than that. The NRA is losing a lot of its power. It's a troubled organization. What's more important, it strikes me, Raul, and I'd love your response and the others on the panel, is Gun culture has become embedded in Republican politics. Period, without regard to how much campaign money is coming in from pro-gun groups, it's become part of the culture, part of an it's an article of faith now. Very hard to shake that loose.
3: A perfect example would be Governor Brian Kemp's uh, stump speech. Um, constitutional carry, permitless carry, is is always. Um, in his stump speech, and it is in the stump speech you hear in congressional races as well. Let me give you an example of how I feel like it's, it's permeated every single level of that policy. You guys remember the, the big mental health reform package, House Bill 10, 1013. Mm-hmm. There was a hearing where a group of gun, gun rights advocates showed up saying, you all are going to use the mental health bill, to take our guns away. It was mm-hmm. it's a perfect example of what you're talking about, Bill. It has permeated so many levels uh, of policy within the right or, or within the Republican Party.
4: I would also um, like to point out that in terms of the public opinion trends that we're seeing, there's been an evolution over the last decade or so from. Um, proponents of gun rights. Um, their reasoning being um, evolving more from just recreation and sort of the frontier go- gun culture to self-defense. Um, and dur- mm. actually, during the pandemic, we we saw an increase in gun ownership, um, actually growing diversity in terms of gun ownership. I think there was like a 58% Increase in black gun ownership, um, about a 48% increase in Hispanic gun ownership. So um, you see um, minorities, more minorities who are um, owning guns who cite um, distrust of law enforcement, who cite also self defense and, and crime rates. So it's really interesting when you look at how the parties are trying to align themselves with the electorates, the different constituencies, and also the changing um, picture of of the gun owner. Um, So we see diversity. We see that our um, population, um, especially in in battleground states where populations are becoming more diverse, so are the issues that um, sort of have served as wedge issues and have these partisan divisions like guns, abortion. And I think it's, it's worth looking at, you know, what are the parties? Um, how are they going to align themselves in the future with, with all of these changes?
1: Renee there's,
2: there seems to be a, uh, I, I mean, just a, a radicalization of, of our daily lives as Americans now, you know, where, In order to exist in our country, we have to arm ourselves to protect those we love from the other side. And that's such a sick and pessimistic view of what this country is supposed to be about, right? And, yes, it it is complex in that you, you can't blame one thing, right, but this kind of avalanche of items that get us to where we are now. Um, you can either take the the pessimistic view of nothing's going to change or you can step forward and say, oh, something is going to change and we all have to, you know, kind of gather around and do it. That seems almost absurd sometimes, right, to say and very Pollyanna-esque to say. But I do think that there is um, a different kind of generation that's coming up that is not going to take this anymore and really takes a look at how things have built themselves to be how they are and is not going to participate in living a life the way we have, the way we created it um, in this country. So here we are with the midterms coming up with issues like gun control, now front and center, right? Issues like potentially uh, losing out to Roe v. Wade becoming obsolete, and suddenly we have some, some galvanizing issues that others uh, who are not pro-gun and equating that with freedom to, okay, let's keep our loved ones safe and let's equate that to freedom, and we'll see what happens.
1: Um. Uh, we got to get to a break, but before we do, Raul, we started the segment talking about Daniel Defense, which sold, which manufactured the weapon used in Uvalde. Uh, the uh, the U.S. House Committee on Oversight and Reform is going to start having hearings on June 8th to look at gun violence, uh, the root causes of it, what they can do about it. Um, and they've already asked Daniel to provide information about how much they spend on advertising, their gross revenue from assault-style rifles, um, and other items, Um, it really puts uh, Daniel uh, in in a very uh, 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 high-profile spotlight in in terms of this whole uh, debate. But as you pointed out to begin with, uh, what are we going to see come out of this? Even if the Democrats who control that committee come up with some uh, measures they'd like to get passed, they might be able to get them through the House, but the Senate's not going to act on them.
3: Probably not. I mean, it's a a challenge, especially when Democrats have someone like Joe Manchin that they've got to to work with on a piece of legislation like that. I think what what you end up seeing, whether it's on the federal level or the state level, um, would be aimed at specifically securing schools themselves because that's something, um, you know, Democrats and Republicans in the end may be able to get on board with, especially when in the state of Georgia you've got cash to work with. Um, in the
1: budget. Um, I got to give it a break. Of course, we should point out there already is a bill that's passed the House that the Senate hasn't acted on that would uh, add some uh, restrictions on uh, gun purchases. Um, I want to do a little bit more about guns and then move on to some other uh, news of politics after the break. But let's get to that first and come back in just a moment with our panel. Claire Sanders, Well Bali, Renee Alegria, Margaret Coker joined me uh, for our show today. I, I just wanted to play one more uh, piece of sound for you all, um, because Cedric Alexander, former police chief in DeKalb County, um, who's now out uh, on the national uh, 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 speaking circuit really talking about uh, effective policing, talking about gun measures, and how uh, police confront difficult situations with guns. And on Meet the Press, he said something that I think relates in a way, Margaret, to what you were talking about briefly when you talked about police and how hard it is to recruit them today, how difficult their jobs are. Listen, Margaret, to what Cedric Alexander told Chuck Todd about the issue of what police have to deal with on the show we got to find a way to get our arms around this, particularly with assault rifles. Mm -hmm. There are assault rifles that are out there. You're talking about high-velocity, 3,000 feet per second tools of nothing but destruction. What's the purpose of them being out on our streets? And police, quite frankly, being a former police chief twice, that is one of the most... If anything keeps me up at night, it's knowing that the possibility of my officers and people in the public are going to have to come in contact with these weapon, this type of weaponry, and there needs to be a real conversation around these assault rifles and how they're so easily, easily, uh, uh, as, you know, attained by anybody who wants them. You don't have to go to a gun store, yeah. Chuck. You can find them on the street at this very mo- moment in any city, USA. So, Margaret, Cedric uh, uh, Alexander points out that that cops are afraid of these weapons they're out, they're overpowered by these weapons
0: yeah, I think that this is um, this is something that that gun um, the gun lobbies, uh, whatever level of those organizations exist, they like to um, they like to conveniently delete the fact that the International uh, Association of Chiefs of Police and Chiefs of police of individual departments are always crying out for better gun control laws because their officers are endangered by the fact that our streets are awash in weapons um, as as our us and our families. You know, we have had, um, in May, 213 mass shootings in America so far this year and 27 school shootings. You know, there are more preschoolers dead this year than um, officers killed in the line of duty. That is something that we all need to stop and, and really let sink in. Um, when police officers uh, tell us what was going to make their lives better, we need to listen to that, right? Because there's, they're the actual frontline emergency workers who are keeping us safe. We shouldn't have to rely on teachers to grab a gun or do a judo maneuver in order to stop shooters who are in their schools. We need our police officers to keep us all safe in all communities, um, not just certain ones. And you know, this this is such a, a comprehensive issue, right? It, it, it transcends um, our racial divides, our socioeconomic divides, um, any of the divides in America right now. When all of our neighborhoods are are um, are screaming for better safety um, and better trust among our neighbors. This is, seems like it just seems like a winner for all of our legislators to um, to wrap their heads around and find a solution for.
1: Um, Raul, let's use that to transition to some talk about the p- politics in Georgia election politics. Um, Herschel Walker has been uh, uh, really giving Democrats a lot that they think they can grab hold of and use against him as he's talked about, uh, guns in the aftermath of the Uvalde shooting, and to be quite frank, uh, not much of what he said about what needs to be done has made sense. There's the, 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 the quotes are pretty difficult to interpret. We don't know exactly where he stands.
3: I think it's just one of those things his campaign is going to have to work on in the end and, and come up with whatever message he intends on using whether it's focusing on mental health whether it's focusing um, on on other issues or school security um, and, and then also come come from this picture is his complicated history um, um, so uh, yeah it, it I think for for the Walker campaign it's really going to be about coming up with whatever that coherent that coherent practice message is going to be down you know now and down the road um, and then, of course, I, I think what, what Democrats are trying to figure out is what is their message going to be specifically aimed at those handful, not only engaging their voters, but but engaging those handful of, of swing voters that are left here in Georgia.
1: Yeah. And uh, and and Renee, uh, Raul Hinted at what I was going to say next, which is it's not just how he's talking about whether there should be new laws regulating gun buying. Uh, It's that he has his own complicated history of having used weapons to threaten people, including a former spouse and others. Um, It didn't have any impact on Republican primary voters, clearly because he won 60 plus percent of the vote. The question is whether Democrats are going to find a way to make it count, as uh, Raul kind of suggests, with uh, swing voters in uh, the fall.
2: Sure. Well, given given his complicated history, I mean, he's proof of what would happen if a red flag law were to exist. He would not he would not be able to own a firearm because of the domestic violence um, issues that have propped up in his history and mental health issues, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Yeah. Was his answer completely nonsensical and no one really understood what he meant or what he said? Yes. Would it be dangerous for Democrats to underestimate him and what he's galvanizing on? Um, No. Democrats definitely need to take him seriously. Need to take what he is trying to say seriously. Um, Warnock is a very, very competent politician. Um, there was a he, he Warnock called for what three televised debates immediately mm-hmm. after uh, the Herschel Walker's primary win, hoping that he can get him on the stage so that voters can actually see the two men um, side by side and decide. So it is going to be a very interesting, um, run up to November. I I think that we're in for a lot of surprises. Um, let's see, as Raul said, you know, let's see what what his campaign does in terms of reining him in and only showing potential swing voters what they want to show, uh, I I think a lot of us are now savvy enough to see through a lot of that. And so we'll, we'll see how it works out, but it doesn't, if, if if we take what happened with his uh, with his comments as, as an example of what to look forward to, it's not looking so great for the
1: Walker camp. Claire.
4: I agree. Don't underestimate Herschel Walker. Um, I definitely think he should be taken seriously. Um, He's, of course when we look at these the general election the opportunities for unscripted moments increase and so up until this time um, the context of hearing from herschel walker has been more of a scripted context so i think as we approach the general election of course these opportunities are going to increase now if this continues if there are gaps um, and um, statements of of the nature that we saw um, last week if it continues. And that's certainly going to be a problem. But I also can see the, the Walker campaign team sort of pivoting here and, and using the issue of mental illness, which um, if you look at public opinion polls, um, a lot of voters say that mental illness should are supportive of more efforts more money going into addressing mental illness as a solution or one of the solutions, I shouldn't say the solution, but one of the solutions to gun violence. Um, The Walker campaign might have an opportunity here to sort of say, Hey, I've um, I know that Herschel Walker has written about and spoken about his um, mental illness history. And they may use that to, to talk about the need for, um, mental illness initiatives and that would be really interesting to see how it plays out especially how i'm more interested in how independent voters would receive that message
1: Uh, margaret
0: old enough to um to take us back about 20 years you know uh, gaps have haven't really stopped candidates from becoming president, right? Uh, you know George W. Bush, um, President Trump. I'm not sure that that voters are going to penalize Herschel Walker for not being eloquent about complicated um, policy topics. Um, should they hold him accountable for that? That's another question. But you know, there's there. I'm not I'm not sure what culture wars are going. What role that that these issues are going to play on the campaign trail later on, when we're all going back to school in the fall, when COVID numbers are rising, when inflation is still high, and um, people are worried about nuts and bolts issues about feeding their family and, and keeping um, keeping their kids uh, safe uh, when they go to school. So. You know, in the moment of outrage and collective mourning right now in the nation, this is an incredibly important issue for all of us to be discussing. I'm not sure how um, how long the legs are, are going to be on, on, on this gun issue, though.
1: Yeah, uh, Raul, I think that Margaret, I think it's true that, that being articulate is is no precondition for winning public office necessarily. The question becomes uh, a candidate who has threatened with a, with a gun uh, a whim, a woman in his life there's a a, a democratic pact that's already got a spot they've got a six figure buy out there saying basically Herschel Walker right for abusers wrong for Georgia Raul
3: and i think the the one other difference i, I really want to mention about gas gaff prone <laughs> candidates in the past and now is social media and the millions upon millions of dollars that are going to pour into Georgia. Who knows? We may crack a billion um, with all the races we have coming up uh, uh, this fall. Just, you know, the number of times you've seen some of those answers that he gave on social media on different channels. Yes, again, that's a small percentage of our electric is on Twitter, is on, you know, bigger part on Facebook. They're going to start seeing that, and, and you're going to see that pushed out. Um, along with what the commercial that uh, that you just mentioned Bill.
1: Uh, Renee I got to get to a break. so one last quick word from you.
3: Yeah no I, I with
2: with Herschel Walker running domestic abuse, uh, Roe v Wade you, you see kind of the makings of the pivotal uh, women vote and what what how women will will participate in this November election.
1: They will decide where Georgia and the nation goes. In the midterms, I've got to get to the final break of the show. We'll be back with more in just a minute. So, Renee, uh, Bert Jones, uh, Republican candidate for lieutenant governor, uh, we've learned uh, over the long weekend did win without a runoff, his race uh, for the GOP nomination for lieutenant governor over his main opponent, Butch Miller. And, of course, it's notable that he becomes the one statewide candidate uh, that Trump endorsed who actually won <laughs> a race. And we also <laughs> learned over the weekend that Donald Trump, is speaking at a rally uh, uh, for the candidate who's opposing Lynn Cheney out in Wyoming, uh blamed the fact that his candidates lost on the fact that he suggested Democrats illegally crossed over and took Republican ballots in Georgia uh, to vote against him. And, of course, Renee, it's perfectly legal to do that in Georgia because we don't have party registration. Renee,
2: <laughs> Right. Well, I mean, c- civics has never been really high on uh, on the knowledge spectrum of Trump. I think we can all agree with that, and some that, that's why a lot of folks actually love him, right, because he just throws the rules right out the window. Uh, you know, you, you can't help but think his ego was tremendously bruised by who he backed in Georgia and who lost and who won. He got one, right? Um, he only got one. What is that going to do with how he campaigns in Georgia Going forward, is he going to avoid the state entirely, given uh, even his supporters in Georgia just turned and gave them, his candidates, a cold shoulder? Not sure, but it is interesting. And it does make, uh, you know, folks trying to predict who he backs a, a little bit more difficult, right? I, you know, a lot of folks try and say, oh, yeah, they, you know, th- does he have a out- more outsized voice within the political party? Uh, Republican Party, or or is it just a show and we in the media pay attention to that show? You know, not sure.
1: Margaret, um, let me bring you in, but let me add this. The Washington Post reported over the weekend that Trump is pretty angry at David Perdue uh, and at Jody Heiss, who also, both of whom lost without getting even into runoffs, his hand picked candidates. He claimed that uh, David Perdue turned out to be a lazy, Uh, candidate. Um, And so I think Renee hints at the next interesting question here. He's got Burt Jones uh, to work for. He's got Herschel Walker, who would have won without Trump's endorsement. So is Trump going to come into Georgia, campaign for them? And if he does, what happens to Brian Kemp in the middle of all this?
0: Yeah, let me just um, step back a couple of steps, because I do not think that Herschel Walker would have run for the Senate if Trump wasn't also um, pushing him from, from the background, right? right. And I think that, Probably right. that Gary Black and Latham Sadler um, would appreciate uh, that being said out loud as well, right? So, so right, we, we, have, a, we have now, um, you know, uh, uh, Craig Nelson, our reporter here on the coast, you know, has been doing a lot of, of uh, you know, men on the street, women on the street interviews with, with our Republicans um, up and down the coast people who associate with the Trump bloc, people who associate with the Kemp bloc. And they're quite clear, right? You know, The, the, the primary results are in, but the divisions within the state party uh, are, still, are still raw and still exist. There are people who still believe that the 2020 election is the primary motivating factor um, for them, both ideologically speaking and emotionally speaking. And, and then there are others. And so there's, um, it's going to be incredibly interesting come through the fall when we have this mixed ballot of people who um, associate with Kemp, who um, like Kemp, who are friends of Kemp, and then everybody else. Then those everybody else's, of course, are Burt Jones and Herschel Walker. So how, how is Trump going to try to put his thumb on the scale in Georgia from here on out? I think it remains to be seen. Will he become obsessed with another state instead of ours? also remains to be seen but I think it's going to, there's going to be an uncomfortable moment uh, if you're in the camp um, campaign um, um, posse and you're in the Herschel Walker posse and trying to figure out how you how you go forward with a straight line message when everybody is in it for themselves
3: Raul uh, I do want to mention an, in, an interesting interview that Herschel Walker did with killer Mike um, and, and, and the quote out of that that jumped out at me was in relation to, did Donald Trump ask Herschel Walker to run? And, and the quote was, quote, he never asked me. So I'm kind of mad that he never asked, but that he's taking credit that he asked. So I, I wonder what the fallout from, from that quote may be. Here's the thing. <laughs> what I feel like we learned is Donald Trump has a certain base. Uh, it, it's smaller than, than people realize. But that base is going to be important, again, because of my basic argument. Every vote is going to matter in the fall. And if every vote matters, then those Trump voters are going to matter just as much as black women are going to matter, suburban moms are going to matter, every Asian American, Latino, every group is going to matter, including those Trump voters. That base may be smaller than we expected, but that base is going to matter.
1: I'm clear We're we're reading this morning in the AJC that Derek Dickey, who is a longtime Republican insider, uh, very close to David Perdue, worked with David Perdue, didn't want Perdue to run, thought it was a bad idea, is now trying to be the broker between the Kemp campaign and the White House, hoping to find some way to make a peace between uh, Trump and Kemp as the general election campaign gets going.
4: Yeah, I I would agree in terms of the the group, the the Trump voters who um, don't like um, Kemp. I would agree that group is getting smaller and that argument's kind of losing steam because you have Raffensperger. I mean, we're we're talking about Governor um, Kemp um, winning the Republican primary, but let's also talk about Raffensperger. That's a huge, huge development in Republican Party politics. Still think you have. A dichotomy you have the the Trump Republicans you have um, those who have moved on from from 2020 Um, and I think it's going to be interesting because you're um, let's say um, Brian Kemp wins reelection and you have Governor Kemp and you have Lieutenant Governor Burt let's say Burt Jones wins his election um, you would essentially have two different Republicans, uh, a Trump-endorsed Republican and a, non-endor- or, or a non-Trump-endorsed um, governor. So it, it's going to be interesting to see how this dichotomy continues to either develop or sort of they all merge together into a unified party, which I don't see that happening, um, at least in the next couple of years.
1: Well, I think, uh, Raul, the number one goal of the Kemp campaign is mm-hmm. going to be, whether they ever find a way to have a detente with Trump or not, is to keep Trump from saying that Georgia voters would be better off electing Stacey Abrams than Brian Kemp, as he did at a rally here uh, months ago.
3: And just as importantly, you will, even, if, even if the former president starts attacking Brian Kemp, you will not see... Brian Kemp respond. You'll hear the answer. He always says, I can't worry about what other people are saying. Mm-hmm. One quick thought. I believe that Burt Jones, if he's elected, will be able to work with Brian Kemp. But if he can't, if he can't, that makes David Ralston, if he's reelected as Speaker, even more powerful.
1: Um, quick comment from you, Claire, before we have to get out, get, get uh, finished with the show.
4: No, I would just say that both Kemp and even Herschel Walker have walked a very narrow line in sort of appeasing both um, groups there in the Republican Party.
1: I, yeah, I think that's exactly right. All right, we're, we are completely out of time uh, for today's show. I'm really grateful uh, to all of you for uh, being with us uh, today. Margaret Coker uh, of The Current. Renee Alegria, Mundo Hispanico, Raul Bali, W.A.B.E., Claire Sanders at Georgia College. Thank you for a terrific conversation to start our new shorter week here at Political Rewind. It's newsletter day tomorrow at Political Rewind. If you're not signed up, just go to gpb.org slash newsletters and we'll start sending it to your inbox every Wednesday. That's it for us today. We'll be back again tomorrow. Uh, In the meantime, I'm Bill Nigan, and I hope you'll please take care and stay healthy. See y'all tomorrow, everybody.